0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book from the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In her layered and theoretically astute new book, The Language of History, Sanskrit Narratives of Indo-Muslim Rule, Audrey Trishke, documents and analyzes a range of Sanskrit texts in pre-modern India invested in narrating and making sense of Indo-Persian political rule and governance. In a study at once ambitious and razor-sharp in execution, Trashke demonstrates the importance of taking seriously the enterprise of Sanskrit historical writing in the pre-modern period. Historically and geographically expansive, Treshke takes her readers through a delightful tour of Sanskrit texts from a variety of genres to show their incongruity with modern conceptions of religious difference and antagonism between Hindus and Muslims. Through her close readings of Sanskrit historical texts, often saturated with poetry and a keen poetic sensibility, Treshke achieves no less than a fundamental reorientation of how we imagine and approach the discipline of history. This meticulously researched and lyrically written book will be of tremendous interest to scholars of South Asia, religion, and the wider humanities. Here now is my conversation with Professor Audrey Treshke. So welcome, Audrey, to the New Books Network again. Um, and it's a pleasure to host you on the New Books Network, and especially on New Books in Islamic Studies. Um, and uh, before, you know, I best uh, record, as I was saying, this is such an incredible uh, incredibly ambitious, but at the same time, razor sharp in its execution, uh, this book, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, And as a way to begin our conversation, Audrey, I was wondering if I could have you um, share with our listeners a bit uh, the broad theme uh, of this book, and especially uh, you spent a lot of time in the introduction talking about uh, the bad habits of uh, modern scholars, historians, in terms of how we look at the pre-modern past, uh, and especially the way we look at the question of India having its own history, and uh, this book is really an exercise in trying to uh, disabuse us of those habits. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just speak a bit about that uh, idea as well in trying to introduce to our listeners a bit the central theme uh, and purpose of this book.
1: Sure. So first off, thank you so much for having me. It's it's, it's a pleasure to to speak with you today. Um, okay. So. I, 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 that's, it's a good as any to start um, with sort of what, what I found wrong or lacking or problematic in our field that sort of prompted me to write this book or how I positioned it, at least. Um, so it, it goes back to a very old Orientalist idea that no one says anymore, you know, except to, except to rebut it, basically, which is that India has no history. And as I explained in the introduction, people sort of mean this in two different ways. One is the idea that actually nothing ever changed in India, that it was a sort of static society. This is an idea that one commonly finds in 18th and 19th century Orientalist scholarship. That idea I think we've, we've, we've largely got, done away with. Um, the second idea I think we've struggled more with, which is the idea that India has no written history. And again, this is an idea that comes out of Orientalist scholarship, and it's what leads to the privileging of inscriptions and monuments and archaeological evidence above written texts. Because if you don't have written history, I guess, then there's no no problem doing that. And I argue that, well, no serious scholar has said India has no history in either sense, really, for a very long time. In the end, actions speak a lot louder than words. And a lot of scholars have acted like this. Like these things are, are the case in their scholarship, in how they actually write, in the sources that they choose to use, and the arguments that they make or don't make. I think there's a whole lot of written history in pre-modern India. Some of that's fairly well-known, such as texts written in Persian through from the 12th to the 18th centuries. But even today, most scholars who work on Indo-Muslim rule, roughly 12th through 18th centuries, would probably tell you, you know, there's just not a whole lot in terms of actual written political history in Sanskrit. And that's false. And so this book is exploring one facet of written history in Sanskrit for that period.
0: Terrific. Although the focus of the book is from around 1200 uh, to the 17th century or so, but... uh, uh, there is also the initial chapter, which in fact goes even further back. And it's a fascinating study and read of between around 700 to 1000 AD uh, inscriptions and what we might find, clues that we might find about uh, uh, the Indo-Muslim uh, uh, others, so to say, in these inscriptions. So could you share with our listeners who may not be so familiar with this terrain, what are these inscriptions and what are some of the central sort of themes that emerge from your study of these inscriptions in the first chapter?
1: Sure. So, so first off, historians can sort of—we can never go back far enough, right? So, even though, as you say, I start the book in twelve hundred, I actually start the book in like seven hundred. It's just sort of the way we we, we work, which is great. Um, and basically, so part of the framing of the book is I'm not just looking for written history in Sanskrit because there's a ton of it, right? You can't write just one book on that unless you want it to be a sort of curt over, you know, short overview. Um, so one of my, one of my framing tools that I use to sort of reduce the number of texts that I'm looking at is I'm specifically looking for Sanskrit mentions of Muslim political figures between 700 and thousand CE, roughly, there are not all that many Muslim political figures in India. Okay. They're limited to specific parts of, of South Asia. Okay. And they're, they you know, it's, it's Indo-Muslim rule is not sort of this big thing that it becomes later. So it's more limited, But I sort of see what I can find. And I come up with, I think it's seven, I think it's seven inscriptions um, that that I think sort of credibly mention Indo-Muslim figures. Um, And I I say credibly mentioned because I have a long footnote on this somewhere. There are other inscriptions that may mention Indo-Muslim political figures, uh, but the vocabulary is, is not yet clear enough for us to tell one way or the other. So I err on the side of caution. Right? I, I give the cases that I think are very clear. Um, so wh- what do we find in these seven inscriptions that survive? Um, many of them sort of through happenstance, so there may have been more, who knows? Um, wh- so key things. Um, one is, I, I, I'm trying to, okay, now I'm like forgetting, forgetting my own points. Um, so I think one thing that we find is, as I said, the vocabulary is not yet quite set with how to refer to these people. Um, so they're not always sort of strongly othered or, or different. There's something different enough about them that it merits vocabulary that at least I argue is clear enough we can identify them as, as Muslims. Um, but, but it's not yet sort of, you know, everything is like so super different. One thing that we do see is an emphasis on political violence, okay, which is a basic fact of this era across the board, um, but, but we do see that sort of emphasized in the inscriptions. Um, it's worth noting that not all Muslims that were in India in this period were associated with violent political rule. They're just the ones that occur in politically focused inscriptions. <laughs>
0: The next chapter uh, really demonstrates one of the key arguments that runs throughout the book, uh, which is a really useful and important argument, which is that when we look at this pre-modern past, it often does not fit into uh, easily uh, oppositional categories of the Hindu and the Muslim. And uh, this next chapter, uh, if I could ask you about one particular fragment of it, I mean, all these chapters are so layered and there are so many texts discussed that we will only be able to talk about some specific aspects in this conversation, but I was really, really Uh, intrigued and uh, found fascinating your uh, discussion of this text, uh, uh, Prithvi uh, Raja Vijaya, uh, which talks about the battle of the Chohans and the Hurids. And you make the argument, uh, Jayanaka's uh, well-known text, and you make the argument and show quite convincingly uh, how uh, even though there is perhaps a Muslim other, but this battle cannot be looked at as one between Hindus and Muslims, that there is a lot of uh, uh, ambiguities and complexities at work in this text. Could you, for our listeners who may not be that familiar with this text, uh, first perhaps introduce what this text is, and uh, then uh, talk about its uh, key contents and audiences?
1: For sure. So, <clears throat> going back to the early 1190s CE. Okay. So, the, so the Gorids are a they they are a political force. They're sort of coming down into the subcontinent from Central Asia. Okay. And, and this takes time. Like years time okay like armies move pretty slow in those days um and and so they come down they take lahore they're largely warring with other muslim-led dynasties and then they get to ajmer okay and the chohans are ruling ajmer many people think of the chohans today as a rajput lineage and or a hindu lineage both terms are anachronistic Right. Like if you said those words to the Chohens, they'd be like, what are you talking about? But anyways, so the Gorans get they get they get to Ajmer run by, you know, ruled by the Chohens and they fight them. Okay, and then there's two battles, one in 1191, one in 1192. The first one, the Chohens win. The second one, the Chohens lose. Jayanaka is writing for the Chohen court or sort of what was left of it. We know he wrote his text between 1191 and 1200, so within that, those nine years, but we're not sure exactly when. Um, and he, so he writes it about the first battle, the sort of Chohan triumph over the Gorids. And in a sense, I mean, if, if one could boil down my argument to a very basic point, it's precisely that, that this was a battle between the Chohans and the Gorids for a very limited area of northern India. It was not a battle between Hindus and Muslims. It was not a battle for India. There was no India politically to fight over. The Chohans didn't think of it that way, nor did the Gorids for that matter. Um, So this was a, a, you know, a sort of political struggle for land and political supremacy between two different dynasties that, as a footnote, happened to follow different religious traditions. There are, as you know, there are points in history where groups do forefront their religious differences when fighting, right? So the argument is not that we should never talk about religious difference when it comes to political violence, but they didn't do that here, right? And, and so that's that's why I'm sort of belaboring this point. So Janaka writes his text, and he presents it this way, the sort of Shohan-Gorid battle, um, and he doesn't like the Gorids which is not shocking, like the Chohens are paying him to write this text, right? So, you know, that view, a sort of anti-Gorid view would be expected here. And so he has this very strong othering of them. Like, not only does he not like the Gorids, but like, it's, it's really strong. Like the Gorids are these like uncouth barbarian sort of monstrous figures in his work, which is not particularly innovative, That's sort of how Sanskrit intellectuals had been depicting political enemies for quite a long time. Jayanaka does use a couple of sort of new things, right? And and keep in mind, you know, based on sort of the parameters of my project, I'm sort of looking for what's new here, what's different. So like 99% of what Jayanaka writes is not new, it's not different. Um, He's a pretty good Sanskrit poet, my estimate. So it's it's nice to read, but, you know, most, most of it's sort of recycling old tropes. So, but looking for what he does that's new, he mentions some markers of, I think we'd say cultural difference, broadly speaking, okay, but still not really religion. Um, and probably the one that really stands out the most to me is language. Right? He talks about how the Gurids they can't even speak properly. Okay, they he saw he mentions specifically that the Gurin ambassador cannot per- correctly pronounce retroflex consonants, uh, which are, you know, they're important to Sanskrit, they're common um, to most Indian languages, um, and not common outside the subcontinent. So it's very hard for people not from India to, to pronounce them properly. But for Jayanaka, this is this mark of like being uncouth and sort of being outside of the acceptable range of ruling possibilities for South Asian kings. They can't even speak the language of rule correctly. Jayanaka is an outlier in terms of the texts I survey in the book, uh, both in terms of time period and in terms of how he views um, Indo Muslim rulers. So, Jayanaka is the first big text that I talk about. And uh, close to 200 years pass before we get to the the next one. So, you know, there's there's quite a gap in terms of time. But then also, no one ever so strongly others as Jayanaka again at least that I have found, right? Other people depict Indo-Muslim dynasties as, as political enemies. Some of them praise them as, you know, great political leaders. There's variety on that point. But there's not this sort of inability to imagine that they could ever be Indo-Muslim, that they could ever be rulers over India, right? We, we, within a couple of generations, that seems to have been a sort of accepted fact on the ground, but not yet, not for Janica
0: mm-hmm. The next chapter is extremely fascinating and interesting, and it uh, engages with the time period of roughly twelve hundred to fourteen fifty, uh, when Indo-Muslim rule, as you put it in the book, is more of a recognizable reality. And uh, I want to focus on two texts that are uh, also form the focus of your analysis in this uh, in this chapter: uh, Ganga Devi's, one of the female protagonists of uh, your book, as well uh, her text uh, Madura Vijaya and Chandra's Hamira. Uh, Mahakavya. And there are many threads again that run through this uh, chapter, but maybe I could have you focus on a couple. Uh, One is, uh, you talk about some new terms and categories that arise in these texts in terms of how is the Indo-Muslim other to be talked about, how it is to be depicted. So if you could perhaps speak a bit about what are those new terms and categories. Uh, But the other argument I found particularly fascinating and what you show in this chapter is that in these two texts, we find uh, two competing but also perhaps in some ways overlapping visions of kingship uh, in terms of how the delhi sultanate is being portrayed but we we see in the conceptualization of indo-muslim rule two visions of kingship uh, that ultimately are for the audiences of these particular texts uh, as well so i was wondering if you could speak about that aspect of your argument as well
1: sure okay so let me let me let me st- for, let me let me start by saying something just about ganga devi um so one of the most frustrating things about being a female Sanskritist in modern times is most of the people we read from pre-modernity are men. It's very frustrating. So it's, it was a real pleasure to find um, a woman writing for for a change, right? And I, I, I did not set out to look for gender diversity in pre-modern Sanskrit authors. And one should not hold up the one exception as, you know, sort of, It is the exception that proves the general rule of of extreme misogyny in pre-modern Sanskrit intellectual culture. Um, But in any case, it was refreshing. So that was nice. Um, Okay, in terms of vocabulary, so we have these sort of two new terms that, that come about in this period. And let me say that the vocabulary never settles right? It never settles down. Sanskrit intellectuals never agree, like, this is what we're going to call Muslims or Indo-Muslim rulers or anybody within that sort of general cultural religious world. So they're always trying out new vocabulary. Seems like it's never quite right. But the two new terms that they come up with here, sort of, you know, 14th century-ish, is Hamira and Soratrana, which also comes as Soratala, okay? Um, so Hamira is, this is coming from, per, from a perso arabic term, Amir, right? You know, so ruler or chief or something like that. And then Suratrana or Suratala is coming from Sultan, right? Which we, we just use that word in English. So I don't think I need to translate that for, for folks. Um, this was not the first time that Sanskrit intellectuals had imported terms. Okay. Keep in mind, you know, a, a, A truly like Paka Brahminical Sanskrit intellectual will tell you like you should never import terms into Sanskrit. I mean, it's supposed to be, you know, Devavani. It's supposed to be the language of the gods. You don't bring in stuff from the outside, but in practice it happened. Um, So this is not the first time that this had happened, but I think it's notable that that it sort of keeps happening um, and that there's this desire to sort of mark Indo-Muslim kings as different in a sense. We still have that desire today. That's why we call them Indo-Muslim or Indo-Persian or Persian or Persianate. There's a whole, I mean, we we also have vocabulary problems. We've also not settled on our terms. Um, so we share something with pre-modern Sanskrit intellectuals in this, this sense. And yet, and again, we have a sort of analogous problem today. It's not clear to me exactly what they were trying to mark as different. They were clearly Indian rulers to the Sanskrit intellectuals who were writing. And in both of these texts, they're not necessarily presented particularly differently than other kinds of Indian kings, right? So I talk about some ideas um, of what these terms might mean, but I ultimately sort of don't have a very clear clear sense um, of, of exactly what what, was it, what did these authors intend to convey by these new terms. Um, except to say that they were not bad, right? They weren't slurs. Um, there are terms that come to be used as sort of more slurs at certain points in time, but not these ones. And in fact, you have non-Muslims who claim to be Hamira, just because you know it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be an emir, right? Um, that, that sort of thing. What was your second question? Remind
0: me. Yeah, the, the competing visions of kingship <laughs> that we found in these two texts, uh, or yeah.
1: What are you thinking of
0: specifically? I'm thinking of the ways in which you were talking about uh, the uh, portrayal of the Delhi Sultanate and how uh, the way in which they conceptualized difference in Indo-Muslim rule relied on certain notions of politics, kingship, etc.
1: So I'm trying to think.
0: And connected to the argument that you made in this, in this, in this chapter also that uh, either of these texts, uh, when you look at them, they're not, uh, they cannot be uh, conceptualized through the binary of absolute othering or full assimilation. Uh, that uh, argument as well. If, uh,
1: oh, sure. So, okay, because it's an interesting thing. A very common topic in pre-modern Sanskrit texts that focus on politics is somebody's fighting somebody else. Okay. And it's usually told from a point of view, right? It's usually not like some objective or attempted objective, you know, narrative of battle. It's usually like we got beaten and this is terrible, or we triumphed over these people and it was awesome and amazing. Um, you know, more often the latter, right, the, for obvious kind of narrative reasons. Um, so in a sense, I mean, we start from a point of both Nayachandra and Ganga Devi are participating in this tradition of writing about grand victories or defeats. And one thing that comes across very strongly in Ganga Devi's text is that she, re- she seems to respect her opponents, Okay? Which, again, is is rather common in Sanskrit literature, right? So, you know, she's writing about this battle between Vijayanagara in which they they destroy the Sultanate of Madurai, okay, which was sort of like leftover from... (laughs) <laughs> left, made, of folk, made up of folks and, and ruled for a couple, you know, I think about four decades by folks who had like come south with the Delhi Sultanate during some of the raids. Um, and, and so, I mean, this is, this is a text about annihilations, about, you know, destroying a dynasty. And yet it's, it seems important to her that the Sultanate of Madurai was a formidable enemy. And it makes sense if you think about it. It, it means more to triumph over someone who you know, gives you a, a fight worth fighting, right? Rather than being, being a weak enemy. Um, so, on the one hand, they're the enemy, but on the other hand, they're sort of an enemy worth having. And I don't get much of a sense in her text that there's sort of that the, the issue doesn't seem to be cultural difference. Right, much less religious difference. She mentions a couple of things. She, she mentions the speech issue, right? That they they apparently they still can't speak Sanskrit properly. They still can't pronounce those retroflex consonants. Um so she mentions that that sort of stuff, kind of echoing Jayanaka. Um I don't know if she ever read Jayanaka or not, but she echoes that that idea. Um, but but still there's this, you know, sort of sort of we're 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 finding an, an enemy who who is worthy worthy of us. Um, Naya Chandra is, is doing a slightly different thing. So he is writing about a, an event that happened over a hundred years before when he's writing um, in a different, like in a different place, different dynasties. Um, and so, so for him, I think the stakes are different. Right? Um, and I sort of talk about his vision of Kshatriya heroism. Right? Um, and some of this you see in Ganga Devi, but I think it's easier to see it in Nayachandra um, because otherwise it's sort of like, why are you writing this dude? Right? Like, your patrons didn't fight these battles, right? Like, like we have to explain why he's writing ab- about these particular events. Um, and so he has this, this vision where Kshatriyas sort of prove themselves in this kind of violent way on the battlefield, which in a sense is very time-honored, but I think what's really innovative about Nayachandra is that you don't have to be born a Kshatriya, or even what we would now call Hindu, um, to sort of exemplify that. And so for him, one of the key exemplars of Kshatriya heroism ends up being this Mongol guy who sort of, like, defects from the Khaljis and comes over to the Chohan side um, and, and, you know, sort of has this, like, spectacular set of moments on the battlefield. Um, and so it's sort of Kshatriya by action, in a sense, rather than by birth, which is interesting. to me. It's To me, that's a sign of... Yeah. I don't know if it's integration, I'm, I'm still not clear on what the right vocabulary here is, but some sort of inclusion of Indo-Muslim dynasties and individuals within the possibilities of Indian kingship that we certainly didn't see 200 years before.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the key conceptual lessons that you articulate uh, through this book, and I want to return to this theme later in our conversation, is that you're really pushing your readers to rethink history and to take seriously the kind of historical enterprise, the kind of historical Uh, imaginaries and aspirations that are at work in these range of texts that you've explored uh, throughout this book. So in some ways, that is in some ways, one might say, the decolonial impetus of this project to really rethink uh, the juggernaut of modern Western notions of history. I want to return to this theme, but it's connected to the next chapter, uh, nonetheless, which uh, looks at regionally based texts in Gujarat and Kashmir, uh, specifically Jain uh, Prabhanda's and from Kashmir the uh, Rajata Rangini's. Uh, and you make an argument in this in this chapter, which is something I would like you to elaborate for our listeners. It's a really fascinating and important argument to take these local histories uh, seriously, uh, that these local histories take center stage in this chapter and that is critical to the kind of argument that you make in this chapter. So uh, maybe for those who may not be familiar, if you could briefly describe uh, th- these genres of texts, the uh, Jain uh, Raja Taranginis, what are they uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with these terms? And then talk a bit about this argument that local histories matter.
1: Sure. So, okay, it's it's not an obvious move to pair these two bodies of material, right? I'm I'm I have no doubt there are methodological objections to this, because I have some of them. But anyways, um, I did what I did, and, and I think it allows me to make some interesting points. So for the for the gene so proband I mean, prabundhas are they're sort of mishmash texts. They, they tend to be prose, but they can also have poetry in them. Um, written by Jains, so you know, kind of religious minority group within, within South Asia. Um, the ones that I work with are all written in or nearby Gujarat, um, but they're written in Sanskrit, okay, so not, not in Gujarati. And I deal, I think, with four texts in that chapter primarily, and they're written within a fairly short time span, sort of first, first half of the 14th century, as I recall. In contrast, um, the, the Raja Taranginis, plural, um, are, are a set of texts written in Kashmir over a much longer span of time, between the 12th and the 16th centuries. I deal with texts from the 12th to the 15th century, so I don't, inc- I don't include some of the later ones. Um, there, I, So I deal with three, three of those. Um, as as a side note, some listeners may be familiar with Raja Tarangini in the singular as a text written by Kalhana. Uh, that's only the first one. Okay, so he, he had several later people that came after him. There's just been um, more attention given to to Kalhana than than later authors. Um, and so, both. I mean, they're like I said, they're very different bodies of work. The Raja Taranginis are. They explicitly set out to write about political history. All of their authors did. They're, they're very clear about that. That's not what the Prabandha authors were necessarily trying to do. Um, I have a little bit on how some of the Prabandha authors, like Merutunga, he writes about you know, wanting to tell newer stories by which I think he means temporally more relevant, right? So like not stuff that happened thousands and thousands of years ago, which we would call mythology today, um, but stuff that happened like, you know, a thousand years ago, and that we even today would identify as actual history. Um, so there, there's a little bit of updating, um, but the Prabandhas are also written in in a sort of explicitly religious context as well. They're aimed at a Jain community, whereas the for the... Uh, Roger they are written in a political context. Um, they're, you know, aimed at at first for Kulina and for later authors directly patronized by kings.
0: Terrific. Uh, the 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 next uh, chapter uh, is again extremely fascinating, and uh, here there is a, a central focus on. Uh, Jain writings, and especially Jain Shvetambara monks writing on Mughals. So we've moved to the Mughal period here. And uh, there's the a couple of things that I found really fascinating, and you can take any of those threads as you as you see fit. One was this argument that you made in this chapter, uh, and again, very convincingly, that for these uh, Jain uh, uh, figures, writing about the Mughal other... Uh, was really a mechanism and a way to chart an identity and lineage of the self, if I could paraphrase it that way. Um, And you also mentioned here, and something I found really fascinating, that Jains were more willing to acknowledge and write about their links with the Mughals than were the Brahmins. Uh, And that would come as, uh, I think that would be a very interesting uh, argument to perhaps explain for Listeners, and the third thing that I found really exciting in this chapter was you talk about three genres of texts, chronicles, inscriptions, and biographies. Uh, So uh, uh, I guess the relationship between genre and uh, argument, uh, if if there is a way to map between these three genres, the kind of argument or the kinds of uh, textual sensibility that we see in these three genres, uh, if you could take any of these three threads and talk about them.
1: Sure. Okay. So. This chapter, this is in a sense, by the way, where the book began, Um, this book sort of came about, it, 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 essentially, because of material that I found when I was doing research for my first book, *Culture of Encounters*, um, and I found these Jane-authored texts on the Mughal courts, and I have a chapter in that book on on the similar materials, but approached from a very different perspective. But there was way more there than I could address in that book, um, and it sort of it piqued my interest. You know, if there's this much stuff on the Mughals, like what is there on other Indo-Muslim dynasties? Um, and and so I sort of at the basis for research for, for this book, which, which is my third book. Anyways, um, okay, so let me start with the argument that Jains were writing about the Mughals when Brahmins were not. So we have Jains at the Mughal court for slightly, a little bit less than 40 years. So between 30 and 40 years, we have a continuous Jain Shvetambara presence from groups based in Gujarat, particularly the Tapagacha. Um, it, it, at the courts of Akbar and then Jahangir. And then they fall out with Jahangir and, and you know, th- th- things, things don't really recover huh? between the Jains and Mughals on that front. In contrast, Brahmins maintained continuous relationship with the Mughals with, for about three times that amount of time, for about a century, throughout the, nearly the entire reigns of Akbar, Jahangir, and Shah Jahan, right? Only breaking in the early years of Aurangzeb Alamgir's reign. And so the obvious question is, why do we have thousands of pages of Jains writing in Sanskrit about their Mughal ties? And we have basically bupkis from Brahmins, right? We have a couple things here and there. We have some praise poems to Kavindra Acharya Saraswati from Jahan's reign, But like, still, we we have no narrative history. We have no clear Sanskrit accounts written by Brahmins of what they were doing at the Mughal courts, right? And we, we reconstruct what they were doing largely from the Persian side of things. And so why, like what, what explains this? Um, I've, I've sort of been haunted by this Brahminical silence for, for a long time now. Um, and at the end of the day, at part, I guess part of, I've come at it from different angles and different publications. I've tried to explain why Brahmins didn't write, but in this chapter, what I try to do is instead explain why Jains did. And specifically it, to me, it makes sense to for Janes to be writing about what they're doing at the Mughal court when they have ties with the Mughals, because it's like an ongoing issue thing. But why do they keep writing for decades after their ties with the Mughal court cease? And they don't write about it as like, oh, this is like happened a long time ago. And, you know, it's over now. It's like still this celebratory, like, yeah, we're like totally down with the Mughals. We're hanging out with them all the times. And it's like you know, 1650, like y'all haven't been at court in over 30 years. Um, And so I I sought to explain that. And my essential argument is, as you indicated, that they're writing about themselves. The Mughals are a foil for Jains. And that, I mean, that doesn't discount that they're writing history. It does not mean that they do not provide interesting insights about what's happening at the Mughal courts they do all of that, um, but from a Jain perspective, I mean, it's really about an internal community way of thinking and self-identifying that is borrowing from kingship, which is a broader trend in Jain communities that many that other scholars have written about as well from different you know times and places and perspectives. But I'm specifically interested in how they draw from Mughal kingship and then sort of Mughal specific ideas. So, I mean, that's that's one thing that I, I try to explore here. I think, turning to the question of genre. So, I mean, you're right, of course, that I do have these sort of three genres that that I draw from. Um, but thinking about kind of differences between them, that's, that's an interesting thing. I think that there are differences that are imposed by the constraints of genre, right? Like you can only say so much in an inscription. Um, I think biography offered the most the most freedom and flexibility because it was still relatively new. And so this is where you end up with something like the Bhanu Chandra Charita by Siddhi Chandra, which is supposed to be about Bhanu Chandra. It's supposed to be this biography of his teacher, Bhanu Chandra. It's like the ultimate like fish shrift kind of praise poem biography thing. And it is, it's largely about Bhanu Chandra, but it's there's some scenes where he's not there, like it's actually largely held together narratively by the Mughals. That's the the most consistent part of the text is like stuff that happened at the Mughal court. Um, and so I think biography probably offered a freedom to do that, that you know maybe the sort of list of gurus did not.
0: Right. Uh, the next chapter in some ways continues with this thread of writing about the other in terms of charting an image of the self in which you analyze Rajput texts that... As you put it, furnish distinct visions of Kshatriya rule, um, and again, you consider a number of different texts. Uh, but I was wondering if you could focus on one of them that I found particularly exciting and interesting uh, in your analysis, which was uh, uh, Para uh, Mananda's uh, Surya Vamsa, uh, and especially his portrayal of Shivaji as a Kshatriya king. Um, and uh, you uh, mentioned and you analyzed this idea how different his Shivaji is from today's Shivaji. Um, so again, I was wondering if you could briefly introduce this, this, this uh, uh, collection of texts that you look at in this uh, uh, chapter, but perhaps then focus a bit on, if you don't mind, this Surya Vamsa and how uh, the portrayal of Shivaji as an example uh, differs from more, more recent inheritances and more recent remembrances of this figure.
1: For sure. So, so in this chapter, I, I group the texts I look at in sort of two basic um, categories. I look at Rajput authored texts, um, and as you noted, there, there's quite a variety there. I think it's worth keeping in mind. You know, people talk today. We talk about Rajputs in the plural, but we say it like it's a singular, like there was like a Rajput culture and you know Rajput this and Rajput that. And like, that's insane. Like there were a bunch of different Rajput dynasties and they shared some things in common, um, much of which they also shared with the Mughals, incidentally. So not really like exclusively Rajput, um, but they had a lot of differences as, as well. So I sort of, I give... Um, I give select examples there, so I just want to acknowledge that there's like this wealth of, of Rajput literature that like I didn't get into, uh, just due to space constraints. And then I turn to the wannabe Rajputs, right? Namely, the Maratha Bhonsle family. And here I must say, I think I'm really lucky that Hindu nationalists don't actually read my books. Um, <laughs> They like this stuff very much, but luckily, those people don't actually like read real books. Anyways, um, okay, so so Shivaji was born a Shudra. Okay, for anyone who's upset about that, feel free to be mad at history, but don't shoot the messenger, all right? Um, And that really mattered to him. And that's the critical part. It mattered to him. Maybe it mattered to people that he was around as well. I think kind of it did. It kind of didn't. But it really, really mattered to Shivaji. And so he really wanted to be a Kshatriya. This was like a, I would say, obsession of his, right? He undergoes not one, but two conversion ceremonies, to convert to being a Kshatriya you can't actually convert to being a Kshatriya by the way so like both of these he has different Sanskrit different like Brahmin Sanskrit uh individual scholars who are coming from like different strands of the tradition like write these manuals from scratch um we still have both of them they're very interesting reading and he sort of invents this like long lost Sasodia lineage so here's the thing no one bought it okay What everyone did buy was that Shivaji was like amazing on the battlefield. He kept besting the Mughals, which I'm sure a lot of people really appreciated. Um, You know, not the Mughals, but other people. Um, He he was a master guerrilla warfare and he was actually pretty innovative, right? He had innovative ideas in many regards on how to rule, including this idea that he wanted to like fit into this. On the one hand, he sort of projected being a Kshatriya as this, like, archaic thing, right, in order to give himself as a new ruler without an illustrious lineage, legitimacy. But on the other hand, the very idea of doing that, he sort of created and recreated a Kshatriya identity that he could fit into, right? So he viewed himself as sort of part of this long lineage, but he was actually being quite novel, in my opinion. I think in part because no one, like everyone knew who Shivaji actually, everyone knew the man was a Shudra, right? So when you're in that position and you want to be a Kshatriya, um, what you have to do is make the argument every which way you can, right? When you're making an argument that no one's going to buy and you know you're ultimately going to lose, right? As evidenced by it being 2023, and we're still talking about how the man was not a Kshatriya, um, you, you make the argument every way you can, right? To convince as many people as possible. And so, that is where we enter with the Surya Vamsha, okay, which is a text better known as um, Shiva Bharati, Okay, but it actually was called Surya Vamsha. Um, uh, and it, it sort of it projects Shivaji as like Mr. Kshatriya, like or Kshatriya ruler in all Kind of ways, um, so it shows him giving extreme deference to Brahmins, feeding Brahmins, supporting Brahmins. Um, these sorts of markers of being a Kshatriya that had been around a long time, but were arguably becoming stronger in the 17th century. Um, and it it talks a lot and very explicitly about caste. All right, this is where we get to one major contrast with today. Today, especially for modern-day Hindu nationalists, Shivaji is a leader of all Hindus, right? This vision of Hindu strength and kind of violent glory. Shivaji thought he was a Kshatriya fighting to preserve, in part, the caste system. And the Vamsha is very explicit about this. So again, for anyone who objects, feel free to register your discomfort, you know, your displeasure with the story of Amsha, but don't don't be mad at the messenger. Um, and so it talks repeatedly ab- about varna and per- preserving Varnashrama dharma, right? This this um, this phrase that sort of stands in for for caste based prescriptions and ideas. Um, and one of Shivaji's Main objections throughout the text and the sort of general Maratha objection to the Muslims, as articulated in the Surya Vamsha, is precisely that they don't recognize caste based differences, that they do not uphold Brahmanical superiority, um, that they are, the Mughals are, of course, not Kshatriyas, um, and they don't try to, to claim otherwise. And so those are the terms in which he articulated difference. A point that I do not make in the book, I don't think I make it in the book anyways, um, but it's perhaps worth pointing out given, given modern politics. Um, it, you know, In the last several months, there's been a lot of discussion of caste, particularly in, in the diaspora and in North America. Um, and a repeated argument that Hindu nationalists make is that caste is an invention by the British. Okay, Shivaji stands as a very strong... Point against that that kind of argument. Um, him, his court, his Sanskrit intellectuals, and in his orbit—all those around him—who use caste as a major way to frame who he was as a ruler. The
0: the next uh, chapter, which is the last uh, substantive chapter of the book, uh, talks about. Uh, uh, portrayals of the fragmentation of Mughal political authority uh, in uh, Sanskrit texts from the early modern uh, period. Uh, With this chapter, I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about, uh, again, two major arguments that you you make. Um, uh, Again, a fascinating set of texts that were analyzed. Uh, I especially enjoyed the uh, analysis of the Akbar Nama translation, which I think all scholars of Islam would really benefit from reading that, especially. Uh, but two of the arguments that I thought perhaps would be useful for us to focus on, one is, towards the very early end of the chapter, you make this point that there is a tendency to view these early modern texts or those from, say, the 17th century, etc., as some kind as marked by some kind of a decline, that there was some kind of a heyday of Sanskrit intellectual writing and historical writing which saw a decline with the early modern or the... Uh, pre-colonial or in the cusp of colonial uh, period. And you you heavily critique and and you actually turn the whole argument upside down by saying that, in fact, this might be the most sophisticated uh, manifestations of Sanskrit historical writing, which uh, imbibed and took into consideration all the other ingenuities that had taken place in the centuries prior to that. So I was wondering if you could speak about that uh, argument of your critique of the narrative of decline of Sanskrit and how you turned that on its head and the second argument that i wanted uh, uh that i thought will be really useful for our listeners to hear you about is that in this period you argue that uh, as you put it and i am quoting from the book that this is an other no more that the, the mughal muslim other is an other no more and uh, Persian language and its sort of uh, uh, different intellectual traditions uh, have been, if not embraced, but in fact accepted in some ways by these writers. So I was wondering if we'd speak to that by maybe choosing a couple of the texts that you uh, talk about in this in this chapter.
1: Yeah. So let me start with um, the 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 what would I call it? The non decline of Sanskrit literature. Um, So, as you say, there is this idea that Sanskrit literature peaked in the mid-first millennium CE, basically with Kalidasa, who was was a fine poet and everything, Um, and and then it, like, declined forevermore. Um, And this idea, it's essentially reflecting biases within the tradition, I would argue, okay? Ideas like this, that that the world is in perpetual decline, that we're all constantly at risk of corruption, that Sanskrit itself is going to become corrupt. I mean, these are all deep anxieties that go back to at least the early first millennium CE, if not earlier, um, especially among Brahmin Sanskrit intellectuals. And that's all interesting to analyze it as a sort of internal part of the culture but it's completely inappropriate for scholars to then take that and assume that in our analysis of what's happening right so as a sort of you know minor methodological point Right? I mean, people talk about this with emic versus edic. And sometimes people, sometimes there is this casual assumption that something internal to the tradition, some framework that's internal to the tradition, is necessarily de facto better than external frameworks. That is not always true. Right? I'm not trying to be a Brahminical Sanskrit intellectual in the pre modern tradition. I'm trying to be a modern scholar. Right? Those are two different things. Um, In any case, so I think that, you know, again, I don't know, well, Okay, I know very few living Sanskritists today who would say that that Sanskrit literature has been declining since Kalidasa, but again, a lot act like that's the case. And there is this preference and deference towards earlier texts and this idea that especially once you get to the second millennium, and especially once you get to the 17th century, well, Sanskrit's either dying or already dead. Um, Or at least it's decaying a little bit. And I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think that some of these later texts, uh, you know, so I'm thinking here, especially about Lakshmi Patti, also known as Lakshmi Dharas, two works from the early 18th century, where he talks about Mughal political intrigues. Okay. And for, if you, if you know anything about Mughal history, you know that the early 18th century had like mad political intrigue, right? That That was like a really interesting 20 years there. So he's writing about all this crazy stuff going down in the Mughal courts. Um, And he's doing it in an incredibly innovative way, among other things, by including massive amounts of Persian vocabulary. This is fascinating. One of the ways that languages are dynamic over time is by incorporating vocabulary from other languages, right? Um, And Sanskrit Sanskrit intellectuals had so long resisted this, even while it happened, in trickles. And then, like, I don't know what, you know, Lakshmi Puthi was thinking, but he just like opens the floodgates. Um, and it all comes pouring in. There's also a bunch of vernacular words in his text. And I indicate this in the book. I'm actually not clear how to read many of them. So, you know, there, there's definitely work still to be done on, on those two, two texts. Um, but he's able to make, have some fascinating puns and expressions. And it is, it is history. In fact, there are some historical details there, right? Like about you know, like the cutting of one king's hemorrhoids that are like fascinating and like no nothing in Persian is that explicit. <laughs> that was that was a fun bit to to figure out. Um, but th- but so it's definitely history, but it's also amazing poetry. And the the history poetry binary is one that I reject throughout the book. You can write history and poetry in pre modern India. Some of us still hope you can actually write history and have it sound pretty good today. And um, I think. I, I think at the end is where we sort of get this, you know, finale flourish, right? And let me say that, you know, I don't, I do contest the timing, as do all Sanskritists, uh, basically, but, you know, obviously, Sanskrit does as a living, vibrant, written literary tradition does die out at some point, I would do that in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, more or less dies out. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it was dying for 1500 years. Maybe the finale was the best part.
0: Uh, Audrey, I was wondering as a final question if I could have you talk about uh, some of the larger implications of this book and maybe uh, focus on two uh, major implications that I uh, saw after reading this book. Uh, One is this very explicit and clear push that you have in this book to have your readers uh, think about history in new ways and to think about history in a way that does not fully, you know, take at face value modern empiricist notions of what actual history counts as. And that you do by showing the the interaction of poetry and history through all these chapters. Many of these texts, of course, are written with ample poetry and with a very sophisticated poetic sensibility so to really rethink the whole binary of poetry and history but really to to think about historical writing in a way that takes seriously this whole enterprise of uh, sanskrit historical writing that you've documented so maybe that that one theme if i could have you talk about how this book tries to reorient what we mean by history and secondly the implications of this this uh, uh, this book for how we think about religious difference and uh, um, how we think about the current politics of religion and religious difference uh, in contemporary South Asia, especially contemporary India. Mm.
1: Those are two two sort of great ending points. So, let me if starting with the the sort of poetry history point. So an interesting point for me to reflect on now because I've actually spent a lot of time recently making sort of empiricist-based claims about history, right? So let me say at the outset, there are facts about the past, okay, that, you know, some people deny and that's ridiculous, right? So th- th- there is like, there is such a thing as like historical truth in, in my world and vision, but that doesn't mean that we can't recognize variety in history and the importance of narrative, And I think here, I think part of where this argument is coming from, for me, is that I was not trained as a historian, right? I hold no degree in history. I have a BA in religious studies, and then I have two MAs and a PhD in area studies, right? So I I never trained in a history department. I became a historian, and and it's a genuine conversion. I, I like being a historian. History's great. It's an amazing discipline. But at times... At times, my historian friends, you all can be a little bit blind to the importance of narrative in your discipline. And as someone who spent most of my 20s thinking about narrative and philology and poetry and turns of phrase and similes and metaphors and, and this sort of things, this is how I was trained. That's so how many Sanskritists are trained. They continue to be trained. That all primed me to then continue to see narrative at every turn. And history is largely. About the narrative, right? You know, there's a reason why we call a list of events and dates a timeline, and it per- it usually comes first as like prefatory material in a book that is then called history, right? Like history is all the words between the names and dates. It's, it's all in the narrative, um, and historians generally speaking, are, I think the historians tend to be, we tend to be fine with dealing with that when we're talking about like, how do you make a, an argument about causality? But I think that historians get decidedly less comfortable, at least many historians do, when you start talking about subjectivity in narrative, right? And, you know, how you write matters and emotions and writing and things like this. Um, and to me, that's, that's very silly. Like, look, if you're looking to write objective history that is somehow independent of a point of view, like it, that doesn't really exist. I hate to, hate to break it to you. Um, which again, is not to say that there are not real historical facts, but rather that you know most of what we're doing is actually stringing them together into a story. And so I think we should just give a lot more attention to that story and that we should consider that as part of the historian's craft. Basically, because it is and always has been, whether you think it is or not. Right. It's it's, you know, in that sense, it is a basic fact. It's true whether you believe in it or not. Um, And so when looking at the past, I think that we should just pay a whole lot more attention to literary features of our historical sources and that we fail to do so at our peril. And so one extension of this argument I make towards the end of the book is I sort of call out historians a little bit who, and, and just any scholars, whether you consider yourself a historian or not, who tend to work on Indo-Persian sources. Many scholars of pre-modern India cite Indo-Persian histories as if it is the God-given unvarnished truth. So Now there is variety among pre-modern Persian medium historians. Some are better than others. But like and, and it depends on context, right? There's all these factors, but like many scholars will cite Abu Fazl as if he's like not also a propagandist, right? Like Abu Fazl was like Akbar's biggest like propagandist champion. And that's relevant to many of the claims that he makes in the Akbar Nama and the Aini Akbari and so on and so forth. Um, and so I think that we can be better historians and we can do more justice to our sources if we understand that, right? And we take it seriously. Those folks, right? Like people like Abu Fazl. By the way, he took real seriously the whole like rhetoric literary facet of his work. I mean, in some sense, that was like the main point for for him, right? Um, in terms of today, I think I think that aware. I mean, awareness is the starting point of all improvement, right? So we have to be aware of what we're doing to get to get better at it. Um, a sort of final point on this, I think it's come across in my comments just now. So there is. There is a tension, and I think it's a real tension, right? I mean, we are living in a world, you know, scholars of South Asia, we are living in a world where there is intense far-right pushback against history, and denial of basic historical facts by Hindu nationalists. And it's very irritating and frustrating. And many of us spend a lot of time just being like, no, that is wrong. Um, And so I understand the desire very much. And in many ways, I like live out the desire to maintain that there are historical facts, and historians know them, and we're not going to compromise them. I don't think, though, that that means that we can't or shouldn't pay attention to literary features in the past and present of the historian's crafts. I think we can, and I think that we should do both, right? Even even while I perceive that there there can be tension there. Turning to religious difference. Um, So I set out to write a book on Sanskrit views on Muslim political figures. And I found a whole lot of Sanskrit views on political figures, but really political figures who happen to be Muslim. That's probably you know one sentence take away from the book. it wasn't a huge deal that they were Muslim right that that's one one way to like boil boil down one one feature of the book um religion just wasn't all all that critical in in this world um it was more for many of the writers, the vast majority that I sort of deal with in the book religious difference was more a side note it wasn't you know it wasn't like the main, the main thing that they were focused on. Um, And so I think, you know, many scholars have made the argument, including myself following many of my illustrious colleagues um, that Hindu Muslim tensions is something that we really date to the British colonial period, right? Not to say that there was never tension between any Hindu and any Muslim, that it all had religious features in pre-modernity, but as a sort of overarching feature of South Asian societies, this com- This is something we really see from the 19th century on forward. I agree with that argument. I'm 100% behind it. It begs the question, though, of well, what, what was difference like earlier? You know, we're clear it wasn't religious based difference, but what was it like? And this is a hard argument, and it's a hard question to answer because no matter what the answer is, it is going to be terms with which most people are less familiar today than the terms Hindu and Muslim, and it is very likely to be categories of difference that no longer matter nearly as much, right? So, you know, you're talking to people on the streets of Bombay today, and you start talking about Hindu-Muslim stuff, people are gonna understand what you're talking about. They're gonna understand the basic terms of engagement. You start talking about Chohangori conflict, a lot fewer people are going to understand what, what's going on there. Um, you start talking about local Gujarati dynasties, right? Like, in the, unless, you, you know, unless you're in Gujarat, almost no one's going to know what's going on. This is a narrative problem, not a historical problem, right? Like, the history is what it is. But narratively, it's less appealing. It's going to stick in people's minds less. And I don't have a great answer for that. But at least I want to try to move forward the history project part of it. Um, Because I don't think that we should be afraid to talk about difference or conflict in India's pre-modernity. And I think a lot of scholars aren't, and it's simply, it's a matter of delving deep into archives and figuring out what the terms of difference were.
0: The Language of History, Sanskrit Narratives of Indo-Muslim Rule by Professor Audrey Treshke published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Uh, Thank you so much, Audrey, uh, for your generous time and for uh, sharing uh, um, uh, your thoughts about uh, the book and for writing this incredibly lucid, important, and historically layered text. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this conversation and, of course, will also enjoy the book as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Audrey Treshke about her wonderful new book, The Language of History, Sanskrit Narratives of Indo-Muslim Rule. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through NBN, which is the New Books Network, one of the most expansive and fastest growing academic podcasts in the world. I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS new books in islamic studies until then this is your host share ali tareen signing off take care stay well and keep listening to new books in islamic studies